What is up, everyone? I hope you're doing fantastic today. It is Tuesday, July 20th, and I am here with Shawan Humes for episode 213 of the MMA Ratings Podcast. We have a couple of different topics to talk about this Tuesday evening, but before we do that, Shawan, how are you doing there, sir? Not bad at all. Staying busy, running and gunning all day long. Speaking of running and gunning, man, it's 49-48, top of the third. Are we going to seven? I'm going to say yes. I'm going to say yes. I'm hoping we go to seven, man. I want, I need Chris Paul to get his first chip. Yeah, I mean, it It really it really comes down. It, I've never seen a guy whose legacy is so much hung up on this, but he'll, he'll really be the uh, – his legacy will be made if he wins this. And the funny thing about it will be that out of the banana boat crew, LeBron's already got rings. Wade's already got rings. If CP3 wins, he'll get one, which just leaves Carmelo. Carmelo's never going to get him, which is unfortunate. Yeah, I, I don't think it's going to happen. He'd have to hop onto a team and get a ring that way, which, I mean, and I, I've i always been a, uh, the biggest Carmelo fan. I've loved and cheered that guy on for years, but he he had his chance, man, when him and AI almost beat the Lakers. What was that, in 2008? Yeah, and you, you know, he's actually – he was supposed to be on the Miami Heat, but he, he wouldn't give up his contract. He stayed with the Knicks, and they took Chris Bosh instead. It was supposed to be Bo- – it's supposed to be Melo, LeBron, and Wade. Yeah, so, I mean, great legacy. He's made a lot of money, but he's not going to get a chip. Yeah, he took the money. I mean, I'm, I can't hate on it. I don't know if I turned that down either, but you, you clearly made a choice. You decided the money was the main thing and got to live with that. That is true. That is true. And people who aren't making big money, though, are these fighters in the UFC. But before we talk about them, let's move over to boxing, which had the biggest event this weekend, where Jamel Charlo and Brian Castano fought to a split draw. Now, this was a pretty big um, situation here because a lot of people had a lot to say about the outcome of this fight. Before we dive into that, let's really look at what you saw within the, within the 12 rounds. Talk to me about the action that you that, that you saw there and what really stood out to you. What made this a great fight just in regards to those 12 rounds? Well, before we talk about the 12 rounds, I just have to state this was going to be for an undisputed champion. Castano had one belt. Charlo had the other three. So whoever won this was going to be the undisputed king of that division. And there's very, there's been very few undisputed champions in history and especially in recent times, very few guys ever get to the undisputed point. So whether Castano won or Charlo won, whoever won that probably would have gotten to pound for pound because they're undisputed and would have put themselves in another echelon. It's just very hard to get all four of the titles together at once. Um, what made the fight interesting, I, I said before, it was going to be based on whether Charlo's power was going to be able to get enough respect to keep Castano from applying pressure because Castano is a good boxer. He, he's he's technical and fundamental, but a lot of what his success is is pressure and volume. And my my thinking was that if he could get going, he would be able to overwhelm Charlo. I figured Charlo would have moments, but the fact of the matter is, I didn't think Charlo would be able to maintain his work rate and his defense if he tried to match paces match pace with Castano. And the only chance. Co- Charlo had was to either stop Castano's forward pressure or back him up. It's pretty much the only chance I saw him having in the fight. And similar to what I thought was going to happen, that that's how the fight played out. Castano was just outworking him. Early on, 
Carlo buzzed him with a good counter shot. But from that point on to almost the tenth round, Castano was just dictating the pace. He was backing. He was either either Charlo was back into the ropes because of the pressure, or Castano was forcing him back. Either way, he was on the ropes and he was defending, looking for counters, and basically getting outworked. Probably every one shot he threw, Castano threw four. Now Charlo said, "I blocked a lot. I rolled a lot." And that that's all well and good. I could see some legitimacy to that. But two things: one. Castano did rock him early in the fight and did catch him clean. And two, even if you're parrying, slipping, rolling, and catching shots, the fact of the matter is you're not returning a lot of fire on your end. If this guy's throwing 10 punches, you're throwing three back. And no, none of those three are backing him off or rocking him. So he's winning rounds just off the fact that he's being more active and he's controlling the pace, of, pace and the place of the fight. It's a close fight because Castano's shots weren't devastating. And as I said, Charlo was blocking and rolling a lot of them, but it was clear winning rounds for Castano because, once again, he's throwing more punches, he's controlling the pace the fight's being fought at, he's landing more punches, and he's controlling where the fight is taking place at. Charlo could tell me he backed up to the ropes, but even for the best fighters, backing up to the ropes is never good. And when you're being outworked and outlanded, it's also not good. Essentially, the power, the fight turned around on Charlo's power. He countered him in the 10th, I think maybe the 8th round, and then he hurt him again in the 10th. And he did enough damage where the judges seemed to be convinced that he was close to a stoppage because he had Castano stumbling and rock, living around. They basically gave him a 10-8 round. Usually a 10-8 round is reserved for when somebody gets knocked down. I personally like the knockdown because if you're going to give a 10-8 round when somebody's get it hurt on the feet, it never gets to that point because usually the fighter gets a stoppage. If you hurt a guy that bad where he's stumbling around and can't defend himself, you stop the fight. So if it wasn't good enough to stop the fight, I don't believe it's good enough to give him a 10-8 round for the fight, for that round, because he didn't get a knockdown on it. So ultimately, it comes down to the fact that the three biggest moments somebody was hurt in the fight, Charlo did the most damage. But pretty much every other moment in that fight, Castano was dictating pace, place, outthrowing, and outlanding Charlo. And since Charlo was thrown to such a low volume, he had a pretty high percentage, but he didn't land a whole lot of shots anyways because he was looking for that same counter shot he landed in the second round, and he just couldn't find it. And on the way to trying to land it, he was just getting he was just getting out hustled. I wouldn't even say he was just getting beat up. He was just getting outworked. And even though he wasn't getting hurt, being actively outworked still counts against you in a boxing match. That means the guy is scoring more points. Ring generalship. Amount of punches thrown, amount of punches landed, and ultimately damage done. If Charlo doesn't land those three to ten punches, the the evenness as far as damage done is far in Castano's favor. So I didn't think Charlo won it. A draw was, I thought, not terrible, but I really don't think Charlo won it. I thought he was just outworked and without a knockdown in any round. I don't see how they could justify giving him the fight. If he would have knocked him down three times, I'd get it. But to not knock him down even once? Nah, I, I can't give you that. I can't give you that. Who even if the guy's not landing, you didn't do anything about it. Who was the favorite coming in? Uh, it was Charlo by a landslide. Charlo has been arguing that he should be on the pound-for-pound pound list because he's got three of the championship belts in a weight class and he's only got one loss. And to be honest, a lot of people said Castano was an easy fight. After the fight, and during the fight, people said, oh, this is what happens when you put the best against the best. Two weeks before the fight, when I said that it was going to be competitive, people were like, you're out of your mind. Charlo's on another level. You're just hating on him. Nobody thought it was going to be competitive. They thought Castano was an easy matchup, easy work for Charlo. Charlo was supposed to just take the belt from him. 
and that didn't happen. So now it's best against the best, and he's got a belt, so you have to respect what he did. Y'all didn't respect what he did two weeks ago. You didn't respect what he did two nights before the fight. Only after he showed and proved did all this respect and acknowledgement of his class come up. Nobody thought this was going to be a competitive fight. It was supposed to be one-way traffic, and Kasana was going to show heart and grit and get the hell beat out of him. And ultimately, that's not what we saw. So let me ask you this. Um, I should, I, this, this should probably be the last question I asked about this um, fight, but I want to kind of think of I'm thinking of it now. If they rematched immediately, so let's say in three months, do you think Charlo has a different game plan to come out and look better in this fight to get the victory? Well, uh, to kind of spin off that, I've talked. There's a couple uh, coaches I know personally, and some you know bigger name coaches. And I asked them personally. I was like, "Look, let me ask you a question. It seems like Charlo's gotten worse because at one point Charlo used to come in and he jab and he walk guys down and he breaking down with body shots and combinations. He didn't throw a lot to the body this fight. And with a guy who's throwing volume at you like that, the body's right there." You don't have to match his pace, but if you're a power puncher, you can get to that body, and maybe instead of the eighth round, he slows down. Maybe around the sixth or seventh, he slows down. And when you hurt him, you actually rock him, and you can stop the fight. But when it's just headshots, he wasn't landing cleaning. He was missing a lot. The body helps you find your rhythm, and it takes away that gas tank. Secondly, it seems like he's become more of a counterpuncher, an aggressive counterpuncher, where he looks for one or two big kill shots, and he gets, but he's been outworked. In three or four of his last fights, he's been essentially outworked. He's just landed that shot late and turned the fight, eventually won. He did it in the rematch against Harrison. He did it in his first, second title defense recently, and then he did it against Castano. He found, he found the shot at the right time. But in between finding those shots, he was you, you could say he was being outboxed or once again outworked. This is like four fights in a row where you've seen him out-hustled and put it in bad positions. So from that perspective, yeah, he could change it. He could start coming forward. He could take... Instead of the cage, he can use his length and his athleticism, jab high, jab low, work the body, actually throw more combinations aggressively instead of sitting back and waiting for that shot to come and bombing a guy out. Because if he doesn't land that shot in the eighth round, it, it's a terribly one-sided fight in the favor of Castano. So he has he's shown more skills, and recently he's kind of pared down his skill set and his approach and kind of more of a sit back and let me just find what you give me. So I think from that perspective – Charlo has more room to improve, whereas Castano is who he is. He's not going to fight off the back foot. He's not going to look for the counter. If he comes in again, he's pretty much going to be doing the same thing again. So Charlo actually has one or two tricks that we haven't seen him do recently that he could pull out. And Castano, to me, is going to be exactly who he was in this fight. He'll be in the same. He'll get to the same spots. He'll do the same work. He'll be there for the same availability. It's just a matter of does Charlo use the full toolkit to create openings and not just wait for them to come. Because if he's just going to wait, it's going to be very similar. And he might not land the kill shot or close to it in the second rematch. But if he uses his full range of skills and kind of mixes in between sitting and waiting, pressuring and standing his ground, then he's going to give Castano multiple layers and multiple issues that he's going to have to address to have to have even close to the similar success. And if he backs up and counters, that's going to be one thing. If he backs him up, he'll have a lot of success. And if he just can take the center of the cage and stand his, stand his ground when Castano comes forward to stop his momentum, well, then now we have a whole other fight. But for some reason, he, he chose not to do that. And his corner the whole time was like, get out there, push him, push him, break him, break him. He wouldn't do it. So I would, I would favor Charlo because Charlo's got at least two or three other things he could do. And I, I think Castano's going to do the same thing he did before. He's going to figure out, I won the first fight, so I'm going to come out and do the same thing. And generally, guys who lean on, athletic, who lean on volume and pressure – 
that first fight is the fight they have to win. The second fight, it's not going to get any more. It's not going to get any higher. So now that guy's acclimated to it. So now he knows what to do and he can add on other skills or go to another level to cut that off. Should there be a rematch? Yeah. He, Cassano didn't lose the fight. I thought he won it. And even if it was a draw, it's still for the undisputed fight. It was one of the best fights probably in the next, in the last two years at least. Definitely in that weight class. It was a great fight. So now it has a storyline. People pay, people tune in to see it again. It's undisputed, and it was a very competitive fight. There's every reason in the world to make the fight again. Good stuff. When, when would you make it? Would it be a quick turnaround? Uh, I mean, probably because, I mean, there's no bigger other fight. There's no other bigger fight for either one unless, like, somebody like Terrence Crawford moved up. There's no other – there's no name division, name guy division. There's nobody else with the title in the division. Castano's got the only other title. So unless a name guy moves up or Canelo says, I pick you, what else are you going to do? You make less money fighting someone. It's more of a risk fighting someone. There's less to benefit as far as your resume or your career fighting someone else. Now, we haven't talked about Shiloh. One one last thing. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, Just for people who've been keeping track – Javante Davis won a big fight against Mario Barrios like three weeks ago. Floyd Mayweather said, we're only fighting people in our camp because we're not making another camp fighter big or a star. Roley Romero fought recently. He's in Tank's weight class. He called out for Tank. He's like one of the best. He's not a great boxer. He's not very fluid, but he's very big. He's very strong, and he hits very hard. Davis has never faced a puncher. And Roley Romero, I don't know that he's a potential star, but if you're trying to get build up for a fight, he will. He's not with the last two guys. Last two guys were humble. Let's just do my job. Roley Romero is going to talk shit. He's going to be over the top. He's going to try and put on a show on Cloud Chase. Plus, he has the added instance of he'd be the first puncher that Javante Davis has ever faced. So you could kind of sell it on a personal level because it'll be back and forth, and you can sell it on, on the fact that he's an actual threat to hurt Davis. But at the same instance, it's a safe fight for Davis because Davis is a far better technical boxer and a much better athlete. So it's a fight with some risk, but manageable risk and a high reward as far as beating another world-class fighter, another name fighter, and having a fight with some bad blood that could maybe generate a little bit more interest in the fights against the, you know, all shucks, I'm just here to do my job and do the best I can kind of guys. Those guys don't, don't raise the ire of fans enough. Yeah, yeah, and I wanted to talk about the judging in this fight because it's been a while since we've had a conversation about shoddy judging in combat sports, whether it be mixed martial arts or boxing. I know that there was one was one seventeen one eleven car that had a lot of pissed off. Why was that car so egregious? And that's the first part. Let's talk about that first, and I'll hit you with the second question next. The reason that car was so egregious was because if it wasn't, there'd be no way that they could have called a split draw and Charlo would have lost all his belts. I hate to say this, but Texas is known for their shoddy judging. Charlo's from Texas. He is the A-side. I mean, I don't want to say Castano would have had to knock him out to win, but he probably would have had to drop him at least once or twice to get anywhere near a decisive decision win in that, that case. I'm not saying Charlo didn't fight well. I'm saying I don't believe he fought well enough to win the fight. And once again, what ultimately once swung him the fight was the fact that they gave him a 10-8 round for I think the eighth round or 10th round, I can't remember, where he heard of. And he had him hurt the whole round, 
but he never had him hurt enough to stop the fight. And to me, if you don't knock the guy down, you can't get a 10-8 round. You have to knock him down. And if, he, if he's so hurt to the fact that you give him a 10-8 round and he's on the feet, then you have, you have to stop the fight. You're basically saying he couldn't defend himself. Because when somebody knocks you down, they have to stop the fight, make sure you're ready to go, take a step forward, now you fight. Because we don't know if you've recovered. We don't know if mentally you've broken. We don't know what happened. So we've got to double-check you. So you're telling me this guy beat him around the ring so badly that it equated to a knockdown, but he was nowhere near being stopped? That doesn't make sense to me. That does not make sense to me. If he wasn't clo- if it wasn't close enough to consider stopping the fight, then there's no way you give it a 10-8 round just because you knocked him around and had him hurt. Either he's so hurt we need to stop the fight, or he's not hurt enough and it's just a 10-9 round. How do we fix this? Because, like you said, Texas is known for their shoddy judging. Uh, we have UFC events still going there. We have big boxing events that are still scheduled to go there. How do we fix this from a judging standpoint? Or is it even worth having a conversation about fixing it? Is it something that you know, it just is what it is? One instance is bad. It's bad for a guy like Castano because he's if he loses the rematch, that would have been his chance to be to the mountaintop be the A-side next time and have to get paid his worth to get a rematch. And it hurts fighter. Pauli Paul Malignaggi lost the fight against a, God, I can't remember. Was it Joel Diaz? It was somebody, I'm sorry, it was years ago. He lost a big fight that could have propelled him forward. It hurts the lesser known fighter or the aging fighter because they're going to give it to the A-side, which means you're going to get undercut. And even if you win the rematch, instead of having two wins over a top name, you only have one. And if you lose then you've lost all your leverage. You've lost all your leverage. But the fact of the matter is this. Texas has been like this for a while. The A side and B side have always existed. It's kind of part of the business, and every fighter knows going in who's the A side, who's the B side, and what you have to do to win that fight. You you just know that. It sucks, but it's part of the game. I don't like it, but it's part of the game. And And thirdly, as good as the fight was, the reason people are still talking about it so much is because they, they're so incensed by the scorecards given. So now the fight's picked, on, picked up second legs because, yeah, it was a great fight, but now we're going to spend the next week or two talking about the fight and how it should have been judged differently and how Charlo was done a favor and how Castano was robbed, which helps, which helps uh, the grassroots aspect of it because people are still talking about it, which helps for a future rematch because people are like, he was robbed, he should get another shot. This build, this lays the groundwork for a rematch with more money, with more eyes on it, with more at stake. So ultimately, if done, if it's a big enough card, big enough fighters, it's it does a great favor for the fighters involved. You know, same thing with when Floyd beat Maidana. You know, Maidana won some rounds, and because it was competitive, and some people felt like Floyd got away with some stuff, it set up for a rematch. So Maidana got two paydays instead of just one. Floyd got two paydays instead of just one. The second fight was bigger than the first because of the, the, the competitive nature of the fight and how people felt the judges weren't giving Maidana full credit for all the work he did. It wasn't, as, it wasn't egregious like Charlo and Castano, but some people felt like Floyd was able, Floyd didn't do enough to win that fight. They felt the judges didn't give Maidana enough credit for what he did because he's going against Floyd. So that set the stage for a rematch, which was a bigger fight and made those guys more money. So ultimately, it's wrong. You want to get it right. But sometimes it works in the favor of the fighters to extend their careers because controversy sells and to hopefully get it double up the paydays for the, the name fighter and for the, the not named fighter. 
Yeah, I definitely think that that was a uh, key moment that we'll see uh, if this fight, is, if they get a rematch in the future. It was, a, it was a, a situation where it shouldn't have went down like that. But, you know, that's how boxing is. Boxing is going to do what boxing wants to do. I mean, that's more of a combat sports thing as well. So we see that in mixed martial arts. We've talked about that more than not um, in MMA as well, too. So speaking of MMA, let's move over to UFC Vegas 31, where Islam Makhachev picked up a big win over Thiago Moises. Um, He finished him in the last round of that fight. And, you know, there's a lot of talk about whether or not he's the same coming of Khabib and Ragomedov. So we're really going to start there because looking at them, their games are different. And I want to say it's almost lazy to really kind of say he's a second coming of Khabib, kind of like the way we compare, you know, we say every black fighter is, is explosive or every, you know, every, every white fighter is cerebral and the hardest worker. Yeah. Yeah, like every black wrestler is is The Rock or Ahmed Johnson, where he may be. It's it's pretty lazy. Remember when they compared they compared Byron Leftwich to Cam Newton? They're like, they're they're the same guy. What? Oh yes, Cordell Stewart too. They did the same thing with him. Yes. And um, my opinion is he's not the second second coming of Khabib at all. Khabib had a different style in every aspect of the game, both standing and on the feet. One big big way to look at that is Makachev. Makashev is more of a submission threat from different positions. Khabib would take you down, get to your back, and basically choke the shit out of you and, and make you submit from there. So there's there's just some differences between the two. Uh, Shwan, what do you think about that talking point on if he is a second coming of Khabib? And where do you see differences between the two? I, I think it's like you said, but Khabib is more positionally sound. It's like he gets people in positions and they're just stuck. And you don't he- get back up. Yeah, he breaks you through that physicality and his presence and his pressure, and he'll snatch a submission, but it's not him. It's uh, Makachev, when somebody maybe reverses or tries to scramble, he grabs something and finishes. He he finds the hole in your rhythm, finds a hole in your spacing. You're trying to post up, escape, reverse, hip out, whatever. He finds it, snatches it, done. Khabib just controls you, beats you down, pressures you, and then takes what he wants. Oh, this is your arm over here, totally locked up, tied up. Let me get it. Mm-hmm. The other guy, he waits for you to make a mistake, or he, he's not as positionally sound. So when a guy counters him, stuffs his stuffs his takedown, he's looking for that submission. They reverse him, he's transitioning to armbar, looking for the guillotine. That, he, he's getting everything in transition in within the frame of the scramble. What could be there is no scramble. It's him on top of you, him hitting you, you trying to cover up so he can't take anything. Let me hold my hands like this. Him prying your hands apart, <laughs> just locking your arms down. So you can't, you can't, with Khabib, you have no control over the pace because you don't have the physicality. You saw that, they showed a clip of when he fought Justin Gaethje and Gaethje hit him like a leg kick and an uppercut or something. Nothing. Walk right through it, got his hands on him, threw him to the ground. You can't evade Khabib's pressure. Once he's got his hands on you, he dictates when you're going to the floor and how long you're going to stay there. Makachev is, he's not as physically imposing. He's good at getting you to the ground, but he's not necessarily going to, keep you there for the entirety of a round. And he knows that. That's why he has his submission game as a counter to when you try to improve your position because he knows he can't just win on control. And if he did, he'd wear himself out and then get beaten by somebody. So he's got to be able to put enough control where you have to resist. And when you resist, he's looking for submission. He's not. He knows he can't hold you there. So he's got to finish you. Could be could just hold you there for three rounds. Get you down, boom. Get up, boom. Yeah. 
Third round, get up, boom. And then he'll just take it when he wants. You know what? Getting a little sick of this. Let me just choke this guy out. It's just a different. It's the same general game plan, but the subtleties is what separates them. One is a very overwhelmingly visually punishing presence. The other one is much more creative and dynamic in how they react and act in a fight. Now, I don't know if you saw, but uh, Islam Akashev, the rankings came out today, updated UFC rankings. And did you look at them? I did not. Guess where Makashev is, is, is ranked? He's not top five, is he? Guess where he's ranked? Just guess. Top five? He's number five. Um, uh, he is sitting in the fifth position behind. Let me just pull this up real quick. Behind. Uh, let's see. He's sitting behind Dustin Poirier at number one, Justin Gaethje, Benil Dariush, Michael Chandler, and then Islam Makashev. So he's made it clear to say that guys in the top 10 are ducking him and no one wants to fight him. So next, why would they? Well, that's how he's making it. The next six, but the next behind him is Tony Ferguson, Rafael Dos Anjos, Dan Hooker, Conor McGregor, and Gregor Gillespie. Out of this group, I am most interested in a fight between him and Gregor Gillespie. To be honest, I would love to see what that would look like. Um, I think he beats Benil Dariush, but I would like to see that fight with Gregor Gillespie or RDA. I think RDA is at an odd point in his career where he's kind of like on the downslide. However, what do you think about this? Where does Makashev rank within the top 10 of the division? Should he be sitting at five? If not, where would you put him? I don't know who should be sitting at five because I don't know that he's beaten anybody with a good enough name. All those other guys, you look at their resumes, his resume is nowhere near just Justin Gaethje's. Even Justin Gaethje's right now. I mean, the, the worst guy Justin Gaethje's fought was Michael Johnson, and that's is based on accomplishment and athletic ability. Michael Johnson is probably better than anybody else that Mukachev has faced. And the same thing with same thing with Justin Poirier, same thing with Charles Oliveira, same thing with everybody ahead of him. I mean, he... He hasn't lost recently, but he hasn't beaten anybody who who's accomplished anything. So that's just off the of potential and dominance. I don't think he wants to face Gaethje because as good as he is at getting in, the fact of the matter, if Gaethje touches him the same way he touches Khabib, Khabib was unique that he could take that kind of shot and keep going. I don't think Islam can take it. I think I think Gaethje puts a leg kick and a right cross on him. That's it. That he, That's it. The night's over. I don't think he can... I, he can't dominate position. I don't know that he can consistently get Gaethje down. And I know he can't get in range of Gaethje without getting torn to bits. Um, Poirier, he might have some success with. But then again, with Poirier's footwork and his jab, I don't know how he gets in on him. Now, once he gets into the ground and, and transitions, we have a discussion. But it's getting to that point consistently without getting clipped. Um, Charles Oliveira, I think he's probably more physical. But Oliveira is a good enough grappler. He can grapple with him. He's just he's, He'd be in ju- just as much danger as Oliveira on the ground. Mm-hmm. And Oliveira is a much better striker and, to me, more dynamic as far as his athletic ability on the feet. Benil Dariush, I think he might be able to beat him. Dariush is a stunningly average athlete. He hits fairly hard, but it's more attrition of damage. And while he can grapple and wrestle and strike, I wouldn't say he's truly elite in any one of them. So I think you could get to certain spots with him. I think you could get to certain positions and have a chance, if not finishing him, at least keeping him on the defensive long enough to win a decision if you don't, you know, wear out yourself. And I don't know that Islam won't because he hasn't, 
He hasn't really had to work. Even in that last fight, he was pretty much having it his way. Mm -hmm. I have no idea what he does when he has to fight back. I have no idea what he has to do when he has to really grind out a win. I don't know if he's capable of doing it. I think that they're going to pressure Padilla when they're taking that fight. Pressure who? The UFC is going to pressure Benil Darius into taking that fight. And I think that that's going to be... Um, that's going to be the big win that he has that kind of walks him into the conversation because you know, is that, is that really a big win though? Who's Benil? I mean, his, his he, that's his big, that would be his biggest win. Benil's biggest win is a faded Tony Ferguson. That's not a big win. I mean, that's why the UFC controls their rankings. Uh, Benil Darius is sitting at three, that would be enough to validate moving Makashev up that high. And yeah. you have Justin and Dustin sitting above there, so we know what that would look like. He hasn't fought Bobby Green yet, has he? I'm pretty sure he hasn't. He hasn't fought anyone in the top ten at all. Yeah. I think maybe, if he fought no, Bobby wait, Green, he might well, lose. I'll say even this. He hasn't fought anyone ranked in the top fifteen at all. Let me let me let me confirm this. Let me let, let I have I have to ask you a question. Now we know we know Connor lost three of his last four or something like that, right? How do you lose to a potential a guy who's no worse? the number two in the division, and then lose to the guy who's no worse historically, the number three in the history of the division, and you fall out of the rankings, and a guy who has beaten nobody with any ranking is now in the top five. I understand a loss is a loss, but you lost to two of the best all-time 155ers in history, and you were actually competitive, and you drop out of the rankings, and someone who hasn't beaten anybody with a ranking moves up to number five? Yeah, Conor McGregor's ranked number nine. So let me let's let's look at how many fights has Tony Ferguson lost again? He's lost two, two, two in he, a row. Gaethje and Darius. No, he lost to uh, Oliveira and Darius. Oh, no, he he, lost three in a row. Yeah. So how is how is Tony Ferguson ranked when he beat guys who were neither champion? And I'm not I'm not saying this for Conor. I'm just saying this for the state of the actual ranking. Neither guy was. One guy was an interim champion years ago. The other two guys weren't champions. Well, I guess there were two interim champions, but neither one of both of them lost to Khabib. Both of them lost to Poirier. So Connor loses these two guys. He's out of the rankings. Tony Ferguson loses three in a row, and the last one to a guy who wasn't even top five previously, and he's still number six. Yeah, What's it? Number six. Connor's number nine. Check out Islam's. Just just in the UFC, he's beating Thiago Moises. Uh, Drew Dober, Davi Ramos, Armand Tarkerson, um, Cajun Johnson, Gleason Tebow, of all people, Nick Lentz, Chris Wade, and Leo Kuntz. He's never fought someone ranked in the top 15, and he's ranked number five. And, and I don't mean to bash this guy, but there, this, there is one thing, and it's gonna, they're going to say, you're, you're riding the Connor train, I'm not, but I'm going to make a point. Outside of his championship run, if you look at Khabib's record, he's not exactly facing killers. He didn't start facing good fighters until he won the title. Connor, Dustin, Justin Gaethje. Previously to that, I think his best win was Michael Johnson. Maybe, uh, was it Gleison Tebow, maybe? I think so. Here's an outstanding win. Islam Makachev hasn't hit. Davi Ramos maybe was his best win. Nick Lentz. Yeah, but that's what I'm saying. If you look at if you look at it to that degree, it's very similar. They've beaten up on so-so competition and are considered unstoppable. I'm not saying they're not. Khabib proved he was, 
but they didn't have to take the punishment and abuse that other people had to take to get to their spots. You see what I'm saying? They yeah. didn't have to. Khabib did not be one elite person. Uh, and then when he got the title, he didn't be. The, he beat Ally Quinta. He didn't face an elite person until he faced Conor McGregor coming off a two-year fucking break. Let's let's, so, let's see. In that regard, they're very similar. Neither one of them beating a elite guy on their way up. And if they move him like this, they're protecting him. I don't want to say I'll say because every fighter's tough. But let's be honest. If they somehow force Benil Dar, you should take this fight. How the hell do you justify that? So looking at well, looking at Khabib's record on his way to the title, you can say you can say. I mean, Rafael dos Anjos is a former champion. He beat there him. There you go. There you go. I'll take that. Um, but he beat him before he's a champion. Before uh, was that before he was a he was he? It was before he went on his win streak. I'm not going to say that it doesn't matter. But that's all the right, fighters, right, that's right. He was a right. different person back then. So that's the logic that he didn't beat the Rafael the Science that we know that was that's not right, right there. He he lost to Khabib and then um, won the title four fights later. Right. So he beat Rafael the Science. Edson Barbosa, maybe. Edson Barbosa lost to every name person at 55. Who didn't he lose to? He's like a gatekeeper, in my opinion. Um, but yeah, those are probably the two biggest. I mean, Gleason Tiba, like you said, he was a contender for a while. But him and Rafael dos Santos are probably the biggest two names he had before he became champion in 2018. Yeah, and I, and once again, I'm not that, I'm not bashing that win. But what do fighters say? I was if you're going to tell me, oh, Connor beat Max Holloway before Max Holloway was Max Holloway, then I'm going to say Khabib beat RDA before he was RDA. We're going to use the same rules going down the line. Both of these guys got moved up, and they hadn't beaten really tough competition. They fought one or two maybe tough guys. They didn't go through the blender that some of these other dudes had to go in. Like when Eddie Alvarez came in, he did go right into to Donald Cerrone and Anthony Pettis and all this nonsense, RDA and all this stuff. Those three fights, Cerrone, Pettis, RDA. That's a hell of a first three fights in the UFC. That is a hell of a UFC. It really you know, is. Gaethje comes in. Michael Johnson, Dustin Poirier, um, Tony Ferguson. He, he, I mean, like, he came in and got right to it. These guys were moved somewhat carefully. And then once they got to a certain level, they were able to dominate. So Khabib proved himself. But that record before, it's kind of shaky. Kind of shaky. Let's talk about someone who doesn't have a shaky record. That's Misha Tate. Um, man, you kind of really forget how great Misha Tate was, I, and she retired at 29. She wasn't She wasn't old. She was still young when she retired. She's been away from the sport for five years. She's had two kids um, relatively close together, and she came back, and doll, she looked in phenomenal shape when she stepped on the scale on Friday, and she looked like she was legit, like, like she never left when she, now you can say, oh, well, you know, she fought 44-year-old. Oh, Mary I will Rodeo. say I will say her way out, which is true. She did fight 44-year-old Marion Renault on four on a four-fight losing streak in her retirement fight. But you can't take she looked good. I was kind of concerned about what she would look like when she got hit. Yep. And she was taking some shots there. But she looked like she looked composed. She looked like she was able to work, like she looked like she could have finished that fight earlier than she did. Um and she looked she looked good. I think she 
got, went out there and she put in, she got some valuable time in the cage. What did, what grade would you give her looking at her performance on Saturday? I would have given her like an A. I give her an A because it was a good performance. She looked sharp. She looked comfortable. She wasn't panicking. There weren't there weren't panic shots. Her punches seemed a little bit cleaner. The the thing about it is, I've always been a Misha Tate fan. And, like, you know, everybody was telling me how Ronda was stomping her. I was like, yeah, she lost to Ronda, but nobody else has been able to put Ronda in any sort of previous to Misha Tate. Before Misha Tate, no, nobody had done anything offensively against Ronda consistently. Nobody got the, got out the first round. Yeah, she she's the first person to take Ronda down, only one of two. And she was the first person to really take it to Ronda on the feet before she kept shooting and getting thrown. And I, I've been a fan of hers because I – what I feel is she's not a great athlete. She's not a great wrestler. She's more a better grappler than she is wrestler. The thing about her, and she's mentally tough enough that if she can last long enough, she'll figure out and she'll change her game plan. You saw against Jessica Guy. Jessica Guy's lighting her up on the feet. So she's missing. She can't land. So instead of jabbing to, to Jessica Guy's head, she starts jabbing to her chest because Jessica Guy can't move her chest. She finds a rhythm. Then she starts going to the face. Then she lands a big right hand over the top. Then she takes Jessica Guy and beats the hell out of her for another two rounds. When she fought Sarah McMahon, Sarah McMahon lighter up on the feet, took her down the ground. Misha Tate made an adjustment, reversed, and from that point on, she beat Sarah McMahon like she had stolen something from her. She fought Holly Holm. Holly Holm's picking her apart. Late in the fight, she had two chances. She takes her down once, almost finished her. 30 seconds before the fight's over, takes her down, submits her. She's very good at making adjustments and staying mentally locked in to win fights. That's why I didn't feel that Marion Renault was a very tough matchup for her. Renault's a good athlete. Even now, Renault's still a top seven athlete in Bantamweight, even her age. But Renault can't keep a fight where she wants it to, and she can't put a fight where she wants it to. Those are the two biggest things in mixed martial arts. You have to be able to force the fight where you want it to, or if you have an advantage, you have to keep it there. She's never been able to take, defend takedowns. She's never been able to consistently get takedowns. So Misha Tate didn't have to worry about being taken down, and Misha Tate knew eventually I would get her to the ground at some point or another. When you have those two advantages and you don't have to worry about those two things, it's a lot easier to walk someone down. It's a lot easier to put punches together. It's a lot easier to attack with freedom because, you know, if they overcommit, you take them down. And, you know, if you overcommit, all they can do is strike with you because they can't take you down nor keep you down. Renault's a tough, gritty fighter. She did well considering her age. She's Always been in a tough fight. She's never been an easy win, but she's a fighter with specific limitations and a historical weakness that she has not fixed from her very first day in the UFC. I commend Misha Tate for being a ranked fighter. I commend her for being a good fighter. But if other fighters who came back and rushed in with the best right away, I'm not going to say his name. We know who he is. Mm-hmm. Would have fought a come back and fought a Donald Cerrone, then an Anthony Pettis, and then a Tony Ferguson. That fighter would have been on a three-fight win streak going into fight instead of being on a two-fight losing streak going into fight. Misha Tate picked her for a reason, and it's still a good win. It doesn't, it doesn't delegitimize anything she did, but let's call it for what it is. That was an easy fight to call. The only question was, was Misha going to be able to take punishment? Because she got cracked a couple times, mm-hmm. and we didn't know she would fold. Last time she got cracked against Amanda Nunes, folded against Rocco Pennington, she couldn't pull the trigger. This time she could. So once I saw that she could handle getting punched, uh, the fight was pretty much one-sided from that point. So what do you think's next for her? Uh, that Holly Holm fight is pretty interesting. You had Holm calling her out saying that she wants that rematch. That's a pretty interesting fight. I would. That could be a co-main event for I a, would do it. I mean... I would if, do it. If, if, I was her, if I was her, I'd get my... 
Holly Holm, win or lose, Holly Holm's been in how many title fights? She fought for the featherweight title. I think she won it at one point. Did she ever win it? No, she, she didn't win it. She fought for the featherweight title twice, lost to Cyborg. No, she didn't lose to Cyborg. She, did she lose to Cyborg? Yep, she lost to Cyborg, lost to Durandamy. And then lost to Nunez. Yeah, so she's been active. Misha Tate has not been active. And I know Holly Holm's not who she used to be, but if I'm Misha Tate, I'm going to tell her to do the same thing I told Conor McGregor to do. Take your time. Get your timing down. Fight opponents who, who can give you issues that you have to solve. Get your rounds and make sure you're in the best shape. Mentally, you're in the best place, and technically, you're sharp. I don't care how sharp she looks against Mary Renault. Mary Renault is a very superficially dangerous fighter. No offense to her. I'm just calling it as it is. If I was coaching somebody against her, or if I directed somebody against her, if I had to put that in quotation so nobody gets in trouble, if I had, I would tell them how to beat her. And it's pretty much what Misha did, and it's pretty much what it's done to her every time she loses. So, so you, let's play you, need match match you need to fight more people. I, I don't have a fight. Ayana Kuniskayev, I'd have her fight. Um, maybe even Irene Aldana, maybe Raquel Pennington. Someone who's a threat, but not so much of a threat that they risk doing excessive damage to her or giving her a huge setback. She needs time in the cage and she needs legitimate challenges so that when she gets into a spot where she's actually pushed, she will act, she will react appropriately. Because right now, that was one-way traffic against Renau, except for two or three moments, one-way traffic. She needs someone who can offer her threats in different ranges. Maybe even a Jermaine Durandamy, but somebody who's dangerous, but not too dangerous. Another fight, another fight, then go after her home. Home, home, don't let home dictate anything. Home doesn't dictate it in your career. Home had five years to establish herself as one of the best fighters in the world. She ain't do it. You ain't rushing me into shit just because I whooped your ass. Don't fucking rush me. I'm the winner. I decide when we have the rematch. I finished you. It wasn't a disputed decision. I choked you on. I didn't choke you out. You didn't tap out. You went unconscious. So I'll dictate when we have a rematch. We'll have it when I'm good and ready, which is at least two fights from now. If you keep winning. Uh, Jermaine Deronami sitting at one. Holly Holmes at two. You have Aspen Ladd who's fighting this weekend. I think she could win that fight. Yeah, um, I'd like that fight for that. Uh, you, I, I think she could beat Aspen Ladd. You have Irene Aldani at four. Juliana Pena at five. She's fighting the champion. Yana Kunskaya, she just lost. She lost on the same card. Caitlin Vieira fought on the same card as well, too. Then you have Misha Tate at eight, Sarah McMahon at nine, Macy Chisholm at ten. I'd actually I'd go Chisholm, Vera. Yeah, Lansborough, Penny, Penny Kanzan. I don't I haven't heard Penny of Kanzan, um, yeah. Sajara Eubanks, she fights on Saturday. Yeah, no. Juliana Avila and Carol and Carol Rose. I I stick with some combination of. I like that Aspen Ladd fight. If Aspen Ladd wins on Saturday, I like that fight. Who? Aspen Ladd. She's fighting yeah, Saturday. I, I can see that. It's just my my only concern is Aspen Ladd to me is, is is once again athletically dangerous, but she's she's not. She doesn't have layers to her game, so she's gonna pose one threat, and if you neutralize that threat, she's not a problem. Holly Holm is a multi-layered threat. Even though she's not a great grappler, she's multi-layered. Amanda Nunes is multi-layered. I like somebody who maybe isn't as dangerous a challenge, but has a little, little bit more depth to their game. I mean, even Durandam has got more depth to her game than Aspen Ladd. Aspen Ladd either Hulk smashes you or gets beat the fuck up on the way to eventually Hulk smashing you. So, yeah, yeah. But I want, I want her to get at least two more wins before she starts calling out name-name fighters. 
She said she wants to be here for a long time. She said she wants to get back to the belt. There is no rush. The belt is going to be there. And the longer you make this wait, the better chance you have of getting it off Amanda Nunes before you get a shot. We got, I, I, we got, if I was in her management, we're talking business. This isn't just fight wins. You've already, you've already been a champion in multiple organizations. You're one of the greatest female fighters of all time. We're talking about maximizing our earnings and reestablishing our brand as a fighter and a person. That takes multiple wins. Losses ain't doing her no favors right now. See, if I was her, I, I would go after the winner of Saturday's co-main event because Aspen Ladd is fighting Macy Chazan in the main event on Saturday. I would go after the, I, I would go after the winner of, of that fight. Yeah, fair enough. That's a good one. I'll take it. So since we're talking about Saturday, let's go ahead and kind of rope into that as well. Where we have Corey Sanhagen fighting against TJ Dillashaw. And watching this fight get built up, Schwan, I just want to I just want TJ to shut the fuck up. Like his entitlement about being caught using a banned substance has been amazing to see. And it's 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 inside it's um it's fascinating to watch him be empowered to be so entitled. I don't know if you've been watching the uh, build up to this fight, the interviews and like some in the special they did around TJ Dillashaw. What are your thoughts about the way they're using that as like a redemption story for his his comeback per se? I mean, it's what everybody does. I mean, even people who were, I mean, Robert Downey Jr. was a drug addict being found naked in people's houses somehow, and he's got a uh, he's got a you know redemption story of him getting his career together, him getting his life together and becoming a huge star um, in movies. So they want, from what I understand, TJ has been fairly honest about admitting that he did it. I don't know that he's been the most transparent, but he's been more, been more transparent than other people. And it makes for good, it makes for good television. He was the most dominant champ outside of Cruz, even though his, his reign wasn't spectacular. He was the most dominant champ. He went on a huge win before he got to the title. He was considered potentially one of the top bantamweights of all time. So they're trying to position him. They're building him up for a run, and they're building him up so that if he loses to Sanhagen, Sanhagen takes that juice and takes the next step. So I understand why they do it. I don't necessarily support it. I feel like it's making him into more of a victim than he needs to be, but I I get why they're doing it. I I get the logic behind it. I don't like it, but I get the logic behind it. True. True. Um, I've just never been the biggest Dillashaw fan, but he is he has a big fight on Saturday and, and he can vault himself back into the bantamweight title picture. Who's the current Peter Yans or Aljamain Sterling is the current bantamweight champion? But who are you favoring in this fight between Sanhagen and um, Dillashaw? Uh, to me, it comes down to this. I don't know what the real TJ Dillashaw is because he cheated. He got caught cheating, so now I don't know that I don't know when he was cheating and when he wasn't. So I don't know what he's been known for is really his. I don't know that the, the durability and physicality that he has is really his because I because let's just say let's say it's a result of the drugs. Then that means the TJ Dillashaw and the style we've known him to was supported by drugs, and he's not really that fighter. Clean. So if he doesn't have that durability or that physicality or that pace. I don't believe he can beat Corey Sanhagen. Sanhagen's length and his accuracy and his dynamic aspects of his striking are able to turn matches against world-class elite fighters. And he's done it time and time again. Dillashaw is not a world-class puncher. He's not a world-class striker. He's not even a world-class grappler. His success is based on the fact that he can push, he can set a high pace and build on it. 
And then building on the pace, he can take whatever you have long enough to make an adjustment and break you through through attrition. Cody Garbrandt rocked him early. He was able to recover, came back, won the fight through attrition. Um, When he fought his first title defense, I forgot, somebody got hurt, and he ended up fighting like a a backup guy. That guy landed so many right hands on him over and over. TJ could not be missed. But TJ kept taking him, got to his spots, eventually overwhelmed him against Henning Burrell. Everybody likes to make it seem like TJ just ran a clinic on Burrell. Burrell was actually touching TJ Dillashaw a lot. TJ was just able to hang long enough to make an adjustment in his attacks and then start breaking Burrell down with his pace in the attrition of leg kicks, body punches, and counter strikes. TJ is not super technical. He's technical but leans heavily on pace, durability, and physicality. If he still can be that TJ Dillashaw, I don't see how Sanhagen wins because, one, Sanhagen has never shown any real wrestling ability. Two, I've seen Sanhagen rocked by less than dynamic punchers. I've seen him physically bullied by less th- by guys. Lineker was pushing him all around the cage. Iri Alicanta took him down and, and basically body slammed him and was controlling him. Aljamain Sterling pressured him up against the cage. So if Tita Dillashaw is the Tita Dillashaw that we know and love, he's faced bigger punchers. He's faced more dynamic athletes. He should be able to uh, take some shots on the way in, event- find his timing, break him down, get position, and finish him. But if TJ Dillashaw doesn't have that chin, or he can't set a pace and build on it, or he can't maintain the work rate, Dillashaw is going to get picked off coming in. He's going to get his doors blown off because Dillashaw's defense was never great, and I don't believe that it's going to be all of a sudden great now. I I have more faith in his offense because you can really actively work that. Defensively, I don't expect him to be much better than he was before. So he's going to rely heavily on that chin, heavily on that pace, and heavily on that physicality. If one of those things is missing, T.J. Dillashaw is going to get stopped in dynamic fashion. But if T.J. Dillashaw is the same T.J. Dillashaw, I don't know how how Sanhagen wins. It's because Sanhagen really can't wrestle. And I don't know that Sanhagen's sharp, explosive burst of offense is really good against somebody who's going to stay in his face and keep peppering him with a series of shots up and down his body. I've seen him get hurt before. I've seen him get hurt a lot when guys pressure him. What do you think T.J. Dillashaw is going to do? Get in his face and pressure him? Yeah, I've seen that, and that's kind of that's I, I can see that kind of playing out like that with TJ offering up a, a lot of pressure. Who's closer to a title shot here, Sanhagen or Dillashaw? I think that's an easy it's, question because it's definitely TJ. If, San, if Sanhagen wins, he'll get a title shot. He'll beat TJ. He'll beat Frankie. He'll have beat uh, Marlon Marais um, in dynamic because I don't see him beating TJ in anything less than dynamic fashion. He's going to snatch the mission or finish him with a blast, black, big shot. The one thing I will say about this is it's my concern with Hey Sanhagen is this. he's rangy, he's clever, he's agile, he's fluid, he's dynamic. But if you look down his record, he seems like he's a finisher type fighter. But the guy he finished was Frankie Edgar, whose chin is no longer there. And the other guy he finished was Marlon Rice, who's never been a particularly durable fighter. Mm-hmm. So is his power what it, we think it is? Or has power been overstated because he's beating up two shop-worn guys in dynamic fashion? That's a good question there. And he didn't do that to John Lineker. He did not. Like, you that's know, a good all, 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 the, all the real durable guys he faced, he went to, uh, for the most part, he went to decision wins over them. I mean, he might have done damage, but he didn't stop them like he stopped those other two. But those other two were on the decline, had it been proven, they can't take punishment. So I'm not sure if he's as dynamic a striker as I think he is as far as raw power. I know he's very technical. I know he's very sharp, and he 
He moves his feet well. He's able to maximize the distance and close distance and extend it. But I don't know how well he does it over a guy he can't dissuade. Those other guys are very fearful of what he's got coming out. TJ Dillashaw and him spar before. I don't think TJ respects what he does past a certain point anyways. So he's not going to get that instant space and that hesitation he gets from other guys. TJ's going to be on his ass. He's going to do it in a textbook manner, but TJ's wins are always when he's on someone's ass. When he's stepping up ground, doing his little footwork, TJ always gets hit by anybody and everybody. When TJ decides to buckle down and extend those exchanges and start pressuring, that's when TJ's at his best. So I don't know how Stan Higgins really handles consistent pressure. When he lands his best shot and that guy keeps going. Now, once again, he can snatch the mission. He could blow his doors off. But I have questions about both because he hasn't done them against guys who were notoriously durable or tough. Yeah, I think that's really going to be the key there. What does Dillashaw look like as the pressure's in? Um, just an update. Giannis just jumped, just dunked on three Suns players at once. Uh, Milwaukee is up 90 to 94 with less than five minutes left in game six of the finals. So let's keep rolling from there. Um, what else stands out to you on this card? In my opinion, I kind of always said, you know, the Macy Barber, um, no, Aspen Ladd versus Macy Chisholm fight. Macy Barber is also fighting. Mickey Gall's on this card as well, too. What else really stands out to you uh, in regards to this fight? Nice. The Chisholm-Aspen Ladd fight stands out because Ladd, Ladd was injured and she was, you know, just Ladd was on the verge of really turning the corner as a fighter. Then she had the loss to uh, Jereen Durandamy. And if I recall correctly, she put a couple fights back together there. But Lada was considered somebody who was like the future of division. That fight against uh, that fight against Durandamy kind of derailed her a little bit. And then she, I want to say she tore her. As she beat Yana Kuniskayev, she tore her knee. And then she was out for a while. So this is her first fight officially back. So it's kind of curious to see who she is and how she fights. Now that she's back, because will she be the same physical force? Will she fight more smarter? Will she have more of a sense of urgency? Because in a lot of her fights, she's fighting the fight her opponents want. And then somebody gets in her ass and yells at her, tells her to pick it up. And all of a sudden, she remembers she's a physically dominant, physically imposing fighter. And then bowls people over and devastates them. But she's she's known for consistently giving up a round or two in fights that she shouldn't have to give up a round or two in and then turning it on late. Um, Jason is a very busy fighter. She's a momentum fighter. Once she gets going, it's very hard to stop her. If if Aspen Ladd is a half second slow or she's going to be fighting dumb and just giving up rounds, there's a very good chance if she gets it the first round or two, she never gets control back of the fight. Mm-hmm. Uh, not because Jason is particularly dynamic as an athlete. She's not. I don't think she's particularly durable. But Jason tends to build on a pace. She doesn't tend to get tired. And she doesn't tend to fight scared. And if you do that, you can keep Aspen from getting to the position she wants to get in to physically overwhelm you and really punish you on the ground. Her striking's gotten better, but it's still still meat and potatoes. It's still fairly predictable. As hard as she hits it, as big as she is, she's still pretty much a one-note striker. Chasen's not a great striker, but she's a little bit more creative, willing to take some more risks. So it's ultimately going to come down to how smart Aspen Ladd can fight and if Aspen Ladd is the same fighter physically. If she is... Uh, she fights smart. She can win this fight fairly handily. If she does a typical Aspen Ladd, I'm just going to be in a daze unless somebody beat me up for two rounds. She ain't winning the third, uh, in my opinion. You know, she can always come back, and she's done it before. But at a certain point, that plant, that game plan builds up a false sense of confidence that eventually is going to bite you in the butt. You're not supposed to win every fight close. You're not supposed to win every game close. 
you do the right things, those things don't happen. And I don't know that she understands that doing the wrong things digs her a hole that she's forced to get out of. And you, you don't want to force yourself to get out of holes in life and sports or anything else. Um, who's the other fighter? I, I'm looking forward to the Macy Barber fighting because she's fighting Miranda Maverick. And that's someone that I feel like people are talking about, but not talking about her enough. And this could be a coming out party for her on Saturday. I think Maverick's already had a bit of a coming out party, to be honest. I feel like she's put some, she hasn't put like some, she hasn't put like super big wins together. Like I won't say that, but she's put together enough where people are starting to really think that she, she might be the future of the division. I mean, people are starting to say that, you know, she's, she's got a chance. At one point, Macy Barber was a girl who everybody was, Dana was high on, everybody was high on. She's a future champion. She's a future contender. The, the bloom has come off that rose a little bit. She's looked less losses. Not only has she looked rusty, she looked like she had a low IQ. And even though she got injured against Roxanne Modifari, she got physically bullied against Jessica Gross, Alexa Grosso. She showed, like, poor – I mean, she didn't even throw kicks to the legs consistently and throw to the body. It was just a terribly one-dimensional and badly prepared fight. So a lot of the bloom has gone off that rose. And against Maverick, Maverick's on a – what a – two-fight win streak in the UFC, four-fight win streak overall, and she seems to have an established identity as a fighter, and she sticks to that, and she builds off everything off that identity and that approach. The issue for Barbara is Maverick can rest a little bit, and Maverick is physically aggressive. She doesn't fear Barbara's power. She doesn't fear Barbara's physical strength. She'll come in there and make Barbara work. And Barbara's in-between game, unless it's got a lot better, her boxing is suspect as fuck. I've seen her be outboxed by many people. I've seen her rocked and dropped by people who aren't even big punchers. And she has not fixed that hole. And all the time from her injury and that time off, she's still the same striker she was. She's still got the same defensive awareness. She's still got the same offensive limitations. So unless she's shoring that up, I, I see a very clear path for Miranda to get to the spot she needs to, to tie her up, clinch her up against the fence, or take her down. The issue from Miranda is Macy Barber is probably comparable to her as far as probably a harder hitter, probably physically stronger, and is just as good an athlete for the most part. Might be a slightly better one. And Maverick's not used to having people who can match her in that realm. Usually she's fought physically overwhelmed girls. She's not going to physically overwhelm Macy Barber. And as limited as Macy Barber is, Macy Barber will not quit. She'll stay in a fight the entirety of the fight. You could outbox her, you could outwork her, you could tear her knee. She don't want out. So if Maverick gets tired or Maverick runs out of ideas, or Maverick gets overly aggressive, Barbara will catch her in one of those extended exchanges, and Barbara will finish her. I think it's a 50-50 fight, but it's very shocking because at one point, Barbara was one everybody was so high on, the future dark horse. You know, I was Paige Van Zandt is scared of me, and I personally think Paige Van Zandt, Prime Paige Van Zandt would have beat the hell out of Barbara, if I'm being honest. But now, Maverick's kind of taking that shine, and really, this is a, this is a crossroads fight for Barbara. This would be a third loss in a row. Mm -hmm. I don't know that she can handle a third loss in a row. I, I'm not saying she wouldn't stay with UFC, but I could see a third turning into a fourth, turning into a fifth, because the book's kind of been out on her. So unless she shows a sense of urgency, fights with a much more focus and IQ, we could very well see a third loss, and it, this might be the beginning and the end for her as a UFC fighter. Maverick has all the momentum on her side as far as who the fans believe in, actually showing growth as a fighter and actually beating improving levels of opposition. Barbara topped off at a very low level and ever since then hasn't done a damn thing in the UFC. 
Yeah, she's been except running her mouth, which is what she does phenomenal, phenomenally. Yeah. If she could fight as well, she talked. Exactly. So, Shwa, we're gonna go ahead and close it up. We're at an hour. Um, what are you working on this week? Uh, still working on the Juliana Pena, uh, Amanda Nunes article. I should have that done this weekend. And then I'm just trying to look for, like I said, I'm always trying to look for some. I wrote another article for a show, breaking down a fight scene for that. And then I'm trying to figure out what fight I could write for, where I could just get a unique, a unique spin of it, without being too critical. Because so many coaches find me to find my tone to be negative, and it hurts the fighter's confidence. Like the fight. Watch your tone, black man. Yeah, I know, right? It's it's crazy, but you know, I mean, they're professional fighters, so whatever I say is so upsetting. But whatever. But yeah, that the main thing is the Juliana Pena, um, Amanda Nunes fight. True, true. I will be doing, I'm working at UFC this weekend and covering as much um, professional wrestling as possible. Uh, yeah, man, life is busy right now. I got some, maybe I have some good news coming up in the next couple of days, so we'll see there, sir. Um, but Schwan, with that in mind, man, we're going to go ahead and close out. As always, I didn't see at the top of the show, please be sure to like, share, and subscribe uh, this podcast. Um, you can always find us across all podcasting networks, Anchor, Spotify, um, Breaker, Google Podcasts, Apple iTunes as well. Um, you can check us out at MMARatings.net and .com, MMARatings.net on Instagram and Twitter. Me, Mar Garcia underscore sports on both Instagram and Twitter, Sharon Humes is Black Jordan Brady. We'll be back here next week. And as always, thank you everyone for spending the time to listen to our show. Uh, stay safe out there, wear your mask, Black Lives Matter, and, and remember all that good stuff. Um, Shawan, thank you again, and I'll see you next week, my friend. My pleasure, sir.